From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. They lived in Darndale. They went outside to play. Their mum said to them, you know, don't go far. Your dinner's nearly ready. And they ended up in New York. The point has been made that the Gardaí do have a lot of evidence. Unfortunately, they had the wrong man as a source for to be last night in, in this case. But I do enjoy doing accents and I've always done it even since I was wee. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily. What happened when the foul-mouthed Derry Girl went to prison? The boys who went out to play in Dublin and ended up in New York. And how easy or not is it to buy medical grade face masks? That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that washes its disposable mask once a week whether it needs it or not. The horrifying murder of Ashling Murphy in Tullamore yesterday dominated the start of this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, with Ryan giving his thoughts on what happened. I was listening to a lot of uh, commentary on the radio yesterday, a lot of callers in on Liveline and uh, news reports from uh, Tullamore, and it just got more and more difficult as the day went on to try and uh, comprehend what was happening uh, and to try and walk not a mile but even a couple of centimetres in the shoes of the Murphy family. Uh, and what they might be waking up to this morning with the full realisation of what's happened and what they've been robbed of. Um, The words that keep shining out is that beautiful expression that was used, shining light. She was a shining light, and every picture I see of Ashling Murphy suggests that she was just that radiant and hopeful and excited about life. She had the world at her feet. She was loved by her students. She was admired by the traditional music players that she played with. She was adored by her family. She was... Uh, also appreciated by friends and neighbours. She was obviously an exceptional young person. Um, And nothing about what happened to her is right in broad daylight. And we have vigils today uh, reflecting the horror of a nation. And we have vigils today reflecting fear. And that's legitimate too. And we have conversations going on about what exactly happened why it happened and why we're looking at these headlines this morning. So as I was listening to this story yesterday and, and looking at the fact that she was, she was that Ashling was 23 years old, I, it, you know, it, it, it can only lead you to feel that as we read this, we feel a certain ownership and a kinship to the Murphy family, even though I've never met them and I don't know, I don't know them at all, but your heart breaks. And t- today, Ashling Murphy is all of our daughters and she's all of our sisters. She's all of our aunties. She's, she's all of our friends. Um, and our thoughts are with her family this morning. That's, that's what, I, what I'll say. It's an unimaginable day of mourning in Tullamore and in Offaly and on the island of Ireland. And that's the truth of it. And with that in mind, we got um, a, a lot of unsolicited emails came in from people overnight who really felt moved to tell their story or at least to offer some class of commiseration, condolence to the Murphy family, but also to people around the country. Um, Maeve writes an email to say, I'm a young woman from Dublin. Uh, Walking to or from anything at any time is terrifying. And I know that young women have been talking about it for months now, but enough is enough. Women need to feel safe in Ireland. I I don't know how to help the problem anymore. Is it better street lighting? Is it more guard presence? If people uh, could help to get ideas together to help Ireland make women feel safe again that would be helpful writes Maeve all of my friends and I text each other the minute we're home and don't sleep until everyone has messaged the group chat 
have my keys ready. We hear about this a lot the last 24 hours. I have my keys ready in case something happens. I don't listen to music anymore while walking, which used to be the highlight of my day. I tie my hair up so I look less like a girl from the back. I only wear flats. I know that women in Ireland are exhausted of hearing stories like this, but something needs to change. I'll never forget the day a friend showed me the key trick. It was like someone had made me feel safe again. I know it mightn't save my life if something happens, but it makes me feel like I'm protecting myself and taking control of a situation that I most certainly have no control over. It sounds dramatic, says Maeve, but whenever I leave my apartment now, I have a fleeting thought that maybe today something will happen. But I don't want to live in fear. And I just get on with my day. I know it isn't the nicest thing to talk about, she says, but unfortunately it is happening and it is most definitely not all men, but unfortunately it is all women that are terrified. Um, And another slightly longer one came in from Anne-Marie who says, uh, Dear Ryan, I hope this finds you well. I, along with most people around the country in the past day and a half, have been left shocked and deeply affected by the senseless and vicious killing of the primary school teacher, Ashley Murphy. I am a primary school teacher turned full-time PhD student and I felt the need to write to you as I wanted to extend my sympathies to Ashley's family, friends, her teaching colleagues and her pupils who have lost their beautiful, gifted teacher. Having worked in school community, to lose a teacher in this way can only be devastating for everyone in the school. But I also felt the need to write to you as a survivor of male violence and domestic abuse. I wanted to reach out to those women who I know will be triggered and affected by this tragic incident and let them know that they are not alone today. Now aged 43, I spent my late 20s and the best part of my 30s with an abusive partner, eight years in total. At the height of the abuse, I lived in fear of my life and assumed that my life would end in a violent act. I kept it all hidden from my colleagues at school, from family and friends too. He was regularly violent, particularly when he was drinking, and near the end, one day locked me in my own home, shutting down all communication with the outside world. And I knew then what was going to happen eventually. He threatened my life and that of my family and friends regularly if I ever disclosed the real truth to anyone. And this was my home that I had bought as a teacher and that I had every right to feel safe in. I miraculously managed to get out safely after carefully planning what to do, but it took me a long time after to tell anyone what had really happened. I am one of the lucky ones, so-called, in that I got out, but I was left in fear of him returning to harm me as he had promised to do any day when I wouldn't expect it and have been left with PTSD and living in a different life as a result of the abuse and trauma caused at his hand. And I know that whilst Ashling's killing was a random act of violence, I have no doubt that it will have triggered women like me who have suffered at the hand of a violent, abusive man and I hope that each of them know that they are not alone. Sometimes hearing that whilst it doesn't take away the trauma and hurt can be a great comfort. We need to crack open the silence around this now and stand together, not just for Ashling, but for every woman who has been shamed or humiliated, abused and attacked. We must all begin to open up this narrative a lot more as every woman has the right to feel safe in her home and in her community. We have the right to sit on our couch and feel safe, to eat our dinner and feel safe, to sleep in our bed and feel safe, to go out with our friends, to go for a walk or jog and feel safe. The most basic human need and right. I managed with therapy, making tough choices and deciding to face the trauma, to find some peace in myself, to set up a new life and to meet someone, a wonderful, thoughtful, kind, caring and generous man who I married over two years ago and I'm so happy with. So to all of you listening who may relate to my story, there can be a new life even in your darkest hour when you're lying on the floor and you think it could all end in any moment. There is light there. You may not be able to fathom it right now, but it's there. 
just take the first step and even log on to women's, women's aid at a safe time if you think your relationship is in any way abusive. You deserve better. We all do. And we all have a right to hold our heads high knowing that this can happen to any of us regardless of our education, our job, our class or our race. We are not weak and should not feel ashamed. I, like many women, loved a man that I thought with enough love could change, but it was never going to be that way. You will never be the same, but peace, love, purpose and fulfilment are possible. I'm living proof of that. May Ashling rest in peace and may anyone who is suffering now in an abusive situation or has, like me, been lucky enough to escape it, be comforted in knowing that today we are talking about it and today we are not cowering away in shame and silence. You are not alone. So thank you for reading. And if one person has was helped by hearing this, then I'll sleep a little easier. Please do use my name if you do read this out, as none of us should be living in shame when we are not the perpetrators of the abuse they are. Thank you. Best wishes. Anne-Marie. An email from a listener to the Ryan Tuberty Show from a survivor of domestic violence following the news of the killing of Ashling Murphy in Tullamore County Offaly yesterday. On this morning's Today with Claire Byrne, the programme started with discussion of the murder of Ashling Murphy and Claire spoke to Garrod's Keegan, deputy editor of the Tullamore Tribune, and she asked him what the feeling was in the community following the release of a man Garthi had questioned for several hours yesterday. I mean, there was shock and, and people were traumatised, first of all, on Wednesday when news broke that, um, unfortunately, Ashling Murphy had lost her life. And then last night that was absolutely compounded when people learned that the man was um, going to be released and um, the Guardian were very emphatic in saying that he was no longer a suspect and as his solicitor put it to me last night, you know, he has been fully ruled out and, and that um, point has to be made. I think people obviously immediately were concerned that the perpetrator is still at large and people are wondering how far on are we now with the investigation? Mm. Um, there was obviously a backlash on social media, as unfortunately is often the case against the Gardaí. Um, but, I mean, the point has been made that the Gardaí do have a lot of evidence. Unfortunately, they had the wrong man as a source for me last night in, in this case. Now, this man, uh, who is no longer a suspect, he's no longer considered to be of interest to the investigation. He, though, was brought to a safe house, was he, after his release? Yeah, he was brought to safe accommodation last night because um, there were concerns for his, his safety because there was so much speculation and there was so much um, commentary on social media. There were so many messages being uh, passed around on social messaging platforms, including images of this man, that um, there were genuine concerns for his safety. Not only was he brought to uh, brought to safe accommodation last night, but I know that there was a guard of presence maintained at his address and the address of his family Um because of concerns there that that something might happen. So, I mean, it's it's all very raw in that sense. And uh, at the same time, people are conflicted because, you know, they might have concerns about him, but, I mean, there's their thoughts are and feelings are with the victim and the victim's family at the same time. And, of course, now in Tullamore, you have the situation where the killer is at large. This is exactly it. I mean, people are very concerned. I, I live, you know, literally 500 metres away from the main access points of the canal bank uh, that, that most people coming along from the town, town centre go down along. And um, all my neighbours, everybody I know, go, goes up and down that canal um, every day or every other day. Uh, one of my sons was, was there on Wednesday, half an hour before all this happened, and he, he saw some of the people who, who subsequently... Um, made reports to the Gardaí and he, he made a report myself. He, he made a report himself. You know, so 
the school that that Ashley went to is literally just maybe a hundred meters away from from that access point of the canal, and um, you have to stress that that this is how how close it is to home, and that's why it's so close to people's hearts here, and that's why people, everybody has been so touched. Mm-hmm. And today then, the investigation, I mean, can you, is it visible? Can you see Gardaí on the streets in Tullamore? You know, we hear that they're going to be doing door-to-door, the Minister uh, earlier on Midlands Radio 3 saying that the investigation uh, would be very, very intense. All of the resources that they need will be pumped into it. Are you seeing evidence of that? Yeah, there, there, the, the, that was mentioned last night that the, there would be door-to-door inquiries. The, I suppose the interesting thing is that the, the Garda tape that was effectively cordoned off. The, the normal entrance to this walkway along the Grand Canal has been removed, but the flowers um, are still there and there were candles lighting there last night. But um, yeah, there, there is a Garda presence still down near the crime scene. And um, I think people are hoping that there will be, um, that the Garda investigation will be stepped up and that not, they're hoping that not too much time has been lost um, by having the other, the, the now former suspect in custody. Um, the the difficulty I suppose is that the witnesses effectively it looks like the the wrong person a person was identified and described but the wrong person was was detained then mm-hmm. after identification but having said that um, if those two witnesses had not been what they saw in the first place we would be even further behind in this investigation. And the Gardaí are still interested and want to track down this bike the mountain bike Falcon Storm is the brand. Yeah, exactly. That's the bike, and there's a good um, um, picture of it has been released by the Guardi. And um, I have to say, it's not the the the, the Greenway, the Grand Canal Greenway, as it's officially called here along Fiona's Way, is um, officially designated cycling and walking route. But I'd say 90% of the users are not on bikes. Um, I would say uh, when it was when it was um, tarmacked and there were lifebuoys put down along it and signs with the people familiar with the signs of a walker and a, and a cyclist, uh, there were a lot of cyclists on it. Um, I think the the number of cycling cyclists using it in the last year or so has declined a little. So I think it might be unusual to see um, a person on a bike um, up there at the at Digby Bridge. Um, slightly more unusual than to see a walker or a runner. Mm-hmm. So, you know, um, I think that might jog someone's memory if they saw, saw a bike. And are you, are you there at the Greenway now, Garrod? Is that where you are? Yeah, I'm, right, I'm, I'm there, yeah. I'm close to, to the main access point near are, the town centre are, are where there people m- have been leaving flowers and, uh, and lighting candles. Are many people walking there today? Or no, I, I have to say, I think it's quieter than usual. It is reasonably early in the morning. But um, in the last half an hour, I only saw one couple with his dog. I saw one man on his own on the northern bank of the canal where this, this crime occurred. Mm-hmm. I saw one man on the far side and one, one man has just passed by me now. Now, people listening might be actually conscious. I, I, I did not say I saw a woman on her own. And I have not seen a woman on her own walking along here. And I know from my years myself of... Um, jogging, walking and cycling along here that it was not unusual to see women on their own either walking or or jogging yeah. or walking along while talking on the mobile phone. Yeah, and, and, and nor should it be. Exactly, yeah. And that's, I'd be concerned that there's so much fear there that, that uh, women are afraid to go out on their own. But I, I know from my own family, I have a wife and, and two daughters and um, my, both my daughters were actually traumatised um, in, the, in the last couple of days 
and yeah. really concerned even last night. I didn't get home last night until about one in the morning and they were still up, as was one of my sons, uh, talking about this and asking me, what, what, you know, what is going to happen? Why has this happened? You know, are we safe, effectively? That's Garrod Keegan, deputy editor of the Tullamore Tribune, talking to Claire Byrne this morning about the murder of Ashling Murphy in Tullamore yesterday. As vigils for Ashling Murphy were due to be held across the country this afternoon, on Liveline, caller Katie told Joe Duffy about her experiences of walking home and the appalling treatment she was forced to endure from random men while doing so. Um, I suppose there's a number of, of things that have happened. I'm 25 now, but looking back over the last few days on different experiences that I suppose contribute to this kind of culture of men harming women or making them feel unsafe, I can nearly pinpoint something from mm-hmm. each year of my, I'd say since I was about 18, you know. Okay. But um, I think, well, two experiences that happened um with a walking home situation actually happened within in the day after each other. They were both okay. together. Um, one of them, the first one happened when I was, um, I would have been 20, and I was walking home from the library in college. It would have been maybe February, so it was dark. Um, not that that makes a difference, I guess. But um, And um, a man who I recognised from around the area um, actually cycled up behind me and grabbed me by the arm and started kissing my arm and telling me to come with him that he saw me around and that he liked me and this sort of thing. And um, I thankfully was able to sort of, I could tell that he had, he was quite drunk. So I reckoned I had a bit of a better chance of getting away. So I kind of yanked him just my arm and Mm -hmm. ran as fast as I could to a nearby guard station. But um, while they were nice and everything, they couldn't really do anything about it um, because they said that it only counted as harassment if it happened more than once. Um, and I would see that man around mm-hmm. nearly every day on my way to college and he'd kind of smirk, you know. He knew, he remembered what had happened. And then I was thinking, I don't want to let this one thing taint my feeling about Dublin, about walking home. So the next day I tried to walk home again and this time... I um, was nearly home. I was about three quarters of the way home and I could sense someone behind me and I'm sure most women have know that feeling that someone's kind of gaining on you behind you. So um, I could feel this guy getting closer so I actually decided to slow down my pace to try and get him to overtake me. Um, but he matched my... He was sort of walking parallel to me so then... I decided to go faster again to try and get away. And basically, we were just zigzagging up and down the path for a couple of hundred metres. And then eventually he spoke up and he said, "Um, I know what you're doing, by the way. So, like, he was clearly aware that he was making me intimidating. And um, you kind of need to, like, make a decision. Are you polite? Uh, or do you get aggressive and tell someone to, to go away, but then what if they turn on you? So I sort of made the decision to be, he kept trying to engage in conversation, you know. So I was being polite. He was asking me questions about my, where are you going? What do you do in college? This sort of thing. I was just kind of giving vague one word answers. Mm-hmm. We were getting closer and closer to my house. And 
in my head I was thinking, do I keep walking and he then he won't know where I live or do I try to get into the house as quickly as I can um, because otherwise I didn't know how long this was. Like, I could have ended up walking like miles out of town. So um, I reckoned naively I thought I had enough time to get into the door um, but he put his, he actually jumped in front of me and put his foot in my front door and blocked my entry so then um, he made this kind of deal with me that if I gave him my phone number he'd leave and it's this thing of people not taking no for an answer and this happens in nightclubs a lot and where people you, they'll ask for your phone number and if you don't give it to them, they can get very aggressive. So, and there's the thing: why would you not give them a fake number? But I've seen guys do this in nightclubs where they will call your phone in front of you, yeah, yeah so, to try and test if it's real. So, in that, I decided the best thing to do was give him my real number, and he, because you know, my main priority was to try and get into the house. <laughs> and he he did do the thing. He called my phone in front of me before letting me through, and. It's just this, I don't know, it, the concept like that, I clearly wasn't interested in speaking to this person, but he would actually call me. I, I blocked that number numerous course, times, yeah. but somehow was calling me persistently for months and months or trying to connect with me on social media as if we were friends. You know, it was really scary. And because those things happened so close together, it really did shake me. I, I would be very wary now walking uh, um, alone. Mm in Dublin at night time or anywhere. That's caller Katie telling Joe Duffy about two of the terrifying experiences she had while walking home in Dublin on this afternoon's Live Line. First, there was a radio documentary. It's called Don't Go Far. It's from 2011. It won a ton of awards and you can hear it on the Doc on One page on rte.ie. Now there's a film all about the adventures of two young Dublin lads who kind of wanted to go to meet B.A. Baracus from the A-Team. The director of that film, it's called Nothing to Declare, Garrett Daly, spoke to Ryan Tuberty this morning. It's the story of, of Keith Byrne and Noel Murray, who in 1985, they lived in Darndale. They went outside to play. Their mum said to them, you know, don't go far. Your dinner's nearly ready. And they ended up in New York. Yeah. <laughs> It was quite extraordinary because they managed to get all the way there. And at the time when they were asked, why did you go to New York? They said they wanted to meet B.A. Baracus from the <laughs> A-team. OK. Now, you, you've put this together. It's a lovely 30-minute documentary, as, as, as it was said to me this morning. You could have done it over four hours on Netflix and bored us to tears, but you put it into 30 and it's much neater. And um, it's a great story. So I, I think you should just tell us, tell us the story from beginning to end because it, it, it is, it's, it's, it's mind-boggling. It is mind-boggling. I suppose. I mean, they 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 were they were streetwise. They were they were able to kind of, you know, get around no problem. They were used to sort of hopping on buses and hopping on the dart and going around places in Dublin. But you know what they sort of did here was quite extraordinary. They they got on the dart first and they went to uh, they went to Dunleary and they saw the ferry there and they tried a couple of times to get on the ferry and they eventually did. They had a great sort of technique where they would sort of blend in with the crowd and try and uh, just get through as the crowd was flowing through. So they eventually got on the ferry. That took them to Hollyhead. There they followed the crowd again and got on a train. Now, I find this quite extraordinary. On the train they met uh, a couple who sort of said to them, you're welcome to stay at our house overnight. Mm -hmm. Now, they were 10 and 13. So this 
like to to just think how mm. um, this could have turned out horribly wrong. Yes. But that it turned out okay. They looked after them. The next day. They decided to go to Heathrow on the tube. Now, the reason they went to Heathrow, they were used to going out to Dublin Airport uh, to the food courts because at the food courts, it was easy to kind of wander around and maybe take something without anybody noticing. So they kind of thought, we'll go out to Heathrow, uh, go to the food court and maybe get some food there. Their next plan was, you know what, maybe, maybe we could fly back home to Dublin. And somehow uh, they managed to get through security to get airside. Now, it took them a couple of hours, but their technique was they would hold hands, they would walk up and say that their parents are coming along with the boarding pass and the tickets. And it took a couple of attempts, and eventually they got through. They went wandering looking, obviously, to see what plane they could get on, and they asked uh, this businessman at the time, you know, uh, where he was going. He said he was going to New York. Yeah, does B.A. Baracus live in New York? <laughs> and he said, well, I think so. They followed him, and that led them to, to, to the gate for what was an Air India jumbo flight. Again, managed to get on after a couple of attempts. There wasn't too many on that plane. They took their seats, and before they knew it, they were en route to New York. <laughs> and not a bean between them, I take it. They were dead. The whole thing was pure bunking on this, bunking on there, bunking everywhere. Absolutely. Uh, taking a few things in the duty-free and Heathrow as well as they went through, and, and basically just chancing their arm everywhere. They would, they, you know, on the plane, they'd never been on a plane before, so they didn't know how they, did they have to pay for the food? Uh, they were going to hide in the toilet because they kind of thought, oh, no, we've had the food now, they're going to come looking for money on it. Then they fell asleep on the flight because obviously it was quite long, but they do remember watching a James Bond movie on the way over, and then all of a sudden they arrived in JFK, kind of not knowing what was ahead of them. All right, well, look, here they are as grown men talking about getting on that plane. Imagine, 13, 10 from Darndale, never been on a plane in their lives and they just find themselves on an Air Indian flight bound for JFK Airport. I think as soon as we got on the runway and kind of looked out the window, it kind of came a bit more real. It's kind of, oh, we're really doing this. Well, I wasn't scared. I don't know about you, lad, but I wasn't. Crazy, honest, 747, jumbo jet. And then you just hear the sudden burst of the engine. It's like thunder in the clouds. And it was good when it was going up, how fast it was going up the runway and then into the air. Ooh, hold on. <laughs> There's no turning back from this. We're going up into the air. So they're up in the air. They're being served, I presume, Indian... Curry. Okay, good. Yep. So they're, <laughs> and they're sitting there, they sleep, the plane lands and out they get. I mean, keep going. What happens next? So obviously they've now, they follow the crowd making their way to immigration and they got stopped there, um, rightly so, because they were sort of saying, you know, you can't come through. So they kind of waited and eventually they saw a gap and they ducked down underneath the booth and managed to get through. Same with customs. They got through and suddenly they were in the arrivals hall of JFK, uh, which I don't think anybody could believe that they were able to get this far. Now, they spent a couple of hours sort of wandering around JFK. They went and started watching the TVs there. You know, that you please put the coins in to, to sit and watch the, the TVs uh, that were on the, on the seats. And eventually they wandered out uh, outside onto the, to the tarmac to kind of see what would they do next. They were sort of planning maybe they might, uh, might try and go into the city, uh, trying to figure out where they were, really. Mm. And then, of course, the, I mean, it's, it's what, about 45 minutes car journey from JFK to the city. So how did they make, where were they bunking then? Well, they were stopped at JFK because they went up to what they thought was a security guard 
and that turned out to be a New York Port Authority police officer who basically kind of looked at them and sort of said, look, where are your parents? And he brought them to one side, and eventually they sort of said, okay, we're on our own. So he had to call in his supervisor, and uh, Sergeant Harrison came down, (laughs) talked to them, thought, this can't be true, and then suddenly the two of them found themselves in the back of a Port Authority police car on their way to the precinct. All right, here here they are again, (laughs) looking for direction, success. Something just didn't seem right to me. And I, I stopped them, and I asked them where they were going. Me and Keith asked them which way it was the town. I said, the center of town? I said, where are your parents? And the little guy, well, he, was, he was the mouth. He was, he was the ringleader. He says, Mima, Mima, in the center of town, we're going to meet. Uh, I said, you're meeting your parents in the center of town? <laughs> so that's, that's obviously the, who's, the, that guy was the Harrison, is it? Yeah, that is, uh, that's Officer Kenneth White of okay. the New York Port Authority. So it was amazing actually trying to find these yeah, police officers. Yeah, great to get, to get him for the documentary, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's 30, 37 years ago now. Yeah. And like, we were ringing the Port Authority and they were like, what? <laughs> like, yeah. Two kids, they ended up in New York in 1985. So it took a lot of kind of convincing thing to sort of say, well, we're not, we're not winding you up, first of all. And then they found Sergeant Harrison, who we'd set up a Zoom call to have a, a chat to him to sort of see what he remembered. And I went on the Zoom call, and there was this other guy, Kenneth White. Wow. And I was saying, sorry, uh, I'm meant to talk to, to Carl Harrison. And he goes, no, I'm, I'm the guy who found them at JFK. And I couldn't believe it. So Amazing. suddenly I was then talking to the officer and the sergeant who looked after them when they were in New York. So they're in the back of a car now en route for downtown New York. Um, and where are they brought and what, what, what next? <laughs> so they're brought to the precinct and they're looked after because obviously they're juveniles and they're a bit worried about them and they're mm. trying to figure it out. Now, obviously they detected, obviously with the brogue, they knew that uh, they weren't from the Bronx, as, as Kenneth White said. So they... they started getting the details. Now, you have to remember, I suppose, in 85, everything is so much slower in terms of trying to put the pieces together. They didn't even know who to call initially. I think they rang Scotland Yard to see if anybody was missing, trying to figure it out. They told them everything, but of course, they they weren't quite sure what airline they were on. They had literally wandered onto this plane by chance, so they're trying to put all the pieces together. It got a little bit serious for a short time, because Mm. when it was discovered what airline they were on, uh, Air India had had a disaster about two months. This was August 85, and in June of that year, uh, there was uh, an Air India flight that actually blew up off the coast of Cork. There was a bomb on board, and he was traveling from Montreal to London. So in the light of this, it seemed straight away that this, you know, is there any connection here? I mean, there were two young kids, but at the same time, the airline themselves were quite upset that this was happening. So that put a, a, a bit of, you know, it made, made things a little bit serious for a short while until they managed to get all the facts together. Then the security uh, for Air India decided that they'd look after the guys, put them up in a hotel suite, <laughs> looked after them. They had as much McDonald's and food that they wanted. They were sitting back watching TV. And then they decided, you know what, we can't have you just in this hotel room for the entire uh, time that you're here. We'll bring you and show you the sights of New York. Oh, come on. Quite extraordinary. So they brought them around to the, around the city, and uh, then it was probably time to go home. Home for his, to see his mammy and have his tea. Yeah, the two lads. Yeah, home to, yeah, 
And you know what? It's quite funny because they knew, uh, they knew kind of maybe will we be in trouble when we get home because, you know, we've kind of caused uh, a ruckus here in three countries and we've had to shut down the terminal in JFK to take people through to show them exactly what we did. It's kind of been a bit of a fuss around us. So yeah. their plan was, you know what, maybe the, the, the jumbo back then coming back, Aer Lingus from, from JFK landed in Shannon and they had this idea, you know what, maybe we'll jump off in oh, Shannon. Yeah. Oh, yeah, she might as well. <laughs> but they fell asleep and they woke up in Dublin uh, to be met by some Kulak Garda uh, <laughs> at the, on the airport and then their parents were there and they arrived with their I Love New York t-shirts uh, to a waiting press and yeah, they, they basically, it was this once upon a time their urban myth story is true. It's a true story and their return, they, they recount the return home to Ireland like this. Two Dublin boys who stowed away on an Air India flight from London to New York at the weekend are now back home. None the worse for their adventure and a little richer. Outside Kulak Air Station, all along the main road, news reporters, cameramen, all jumping and jostling to get photographs. They chased me down the road, all the photographers, and my dad told me not to go around near the car because there's no taxi children's on the windows. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, Garrett, what... Uh, Became of Keith and Noel. We, I say, we obviously they feature pr- pr- prominently in the documentary. But uh, give us a, a kind of whirlwind through where they are now. What happened to yeah, them? Yeah, well, they're both they're both still living in Dublin, and um, you know they had a challenging upbringing, and and then I think you know Noel in particular had a had a tough uh, a tough time in life. Um, you know, people will see that in the documentary mm. that she, you know he had a he had a challenging path. They're both in a very good place now, and um, I suppose they're, they're very private men um you know this is something that happened to them you know when they were 10 and 13 and it's as if if you think back to when you're that age if you did something you know you having to recall it all the time so in a way i think you know uh they get asked about it a lot but they are quite private at this stage and both in a very very good place keith family man you know uh, working away happy out and noel on a road to recovery thankfully at this stage okay. and basically in a in a good place but right. lovely guys i i, I I absolutely love spending time with them. You can, they still have the cheeky ch- charm about them as well as the guy said, the young guy with the mouth. You know, he was, uh, you, you can see that they still have that, that boldness to them. And the, the documentary itself, uh, what, what, what's to become of it? I mean, would there be the Oscar buzz about it or is that, is that another arduous road to travel? <laughs> Oscar buzz, yeah. Well, that is some road. I mean, there was we 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 played at the Galway Film Flat. That's where we premiered the film. Yeah. And um, we were lucky enough to win uh, the best short documentary award there, which made us eligible for the Oscars. Uh, now we then went and had our international premiere in New York at a festival called Doc NYC, which is uh, America's largest documentary festival, and that kind of brought a bit of attention to the film. They put us on what they call a short list, which were, were films that they identified as potentially making it to sort of uh, the short list of the Oscars. Oh. So you kind of get a bit excited yeah. to think about that and you don't want to think about it at the same time. Do you know, it was a massive reality check as well, though, because uh, at that stage, they were sort of asking us, are you guys running a campaign? And, and I was like, a campaign? Um, well, I suppose. Uh, yeah. And then publicists started getting in touch and the ridiculous money, actually, that 
you were been asked to kind of you know there's a lot of lot of money needed to run these campaigns and stuff like that and you know that was a bit of an eye opener yes. now I kind of felt looking around that you know all the other films you had the likes of Netflix and Paramount Plus and all these short documentaries backed by big backers and here was us with our sort of small independent movie I didn't quite think it would happen and as it turned out we didn't make that short list at the end of December there but you know what the attention was really good because it brought us to the attention of the New Yorker yeah. uh, an incredibly sort of prestigious publication and what that then led to is them acquiring the film and they released the film in the States uh, yesterday um, so that's oh, great because now yeah. there's a huge kind of a huge number of people that are going to get a chance to see it there and obviously we're working on uh, we're actually talking to RT now about um, you know having it shown in Ireland Garrett Daly talking to Ryan Tuberty about his documentary film Nothing to Declare which will be shown as part of the Dublin International Film Festival in February. And if you're like me and you are thinking where have I heard Garrett's voice before? He is indeed the Garrett who joins Aideen Gormley on Lyric FM's brilliant movies and musicals of a Saturday afternoon with movie news. Now his movies is the news. That's mad Ted. Well, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Dr Ronan Glynn, joined Claire Byrne this morning to discuss the changing restrictions that came into force today for people who test positive and who are close contacts of people who test positive for COVID-19. Can you explain to us why Neffet decided that this was the right thing to do and that it was the right thing to do today? Sure, Claire. First of all, obviously, given the circumstances, I just want to extend my sympathies to, to Ashling's family and, and obviously our thoughts are with, with her family and the wider community in Tullamore yes, uh, today. Um, so the, 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 as you know, our, our response to the pandemic has, has been evolving throughout and, and we've, we've regularly made changes to, to the advice and guidance. Obviously, the latest changes are in light of our evolving understanding of Omicron uh, the importance of boosters, which is reflected in the guidance, the impact that we've seen on society broadly and on our health service specifically over the past number of weeks, and then obviously what the ECDC said, but also other international guidance. And what we've sought to do is to, to balance um, the, the various measures that we have. So, so I know that some of the commentary has been specifically around the reduction, restriction of movements or self-isolation, but that, that in our opinion, needs to be weighed against the, the, the need for testing and the need for higher grade masks and the need for people who are identified as cases or contacts to pay particular attention uh, to who they're meeting with over the period where they may be potentially infectious. Professor Anthony Staines, who's Professor of Health Systems at DCU, he says that the ECD did make suggestions for the changes on isolation rules where those rules were crippling certain sectors of society, like, for example, healthcare. But he's saying that you took those suggestions and you pushed them out substantially, saying that Neffet is waltzing in the dark and this change may increase transmission. What do you say to that? So the, the only way to be sure that, that there won't be transmission is to ask everyone to, to stay in their houses for a prolonged period of time throughout any potential infectious period. So any reduction in, in, in restriction or isolation of movements brings with it an increased risk of transmission. The ECDC recognises that. We've recognised that in, th- throughout. Um, but again, I think you know, some of the commentary around this uh, was made prior to the, to the actual measures being 
uh, formally adopted by government and announced. And again, I did hear a, a representative from ECDC on, on the station yesterday. And, and broadly speaking, she, she felt that the, the measures that we've taken here were in line. And again, I'd reiterate, uh, as the ECDC has done, that this isn't just about uh, restriction of movement or isolation. It's also about wearing the appropriate mask for a period of time and doing regular testing where mm. appropriate. And of course, underpinning all of that from our perspective uh, is that we focused on differentiating between people who are boosted and not. Um, because we can see in our data and we can see in the international data that boosting gives significant additional protection uh, against symptomatic infection. But more importantly, it also gives significant additional protection against uh, severe disease and hospitalisation. Uh, and we are seeing that in, in the data that we have in our own health system at the moment where, you know, if you look at people in ICU, for example, today, about 50% of, of people are fully vaccinated. Just about 20% of people in, in ICU this morning are, are boosted. Um, so again, that highlights the, the, the real positive impact that boosting has on keeping people well and out of, out of severe disease. On the close contact self-isolation rules changing again, it does increase the complexities for people to deal with. And the risk is that people will assume that close contacts are free to go about their business. And I know the CMO, uh, Dr. Houlihan, made reference to this when he was on the 6-1 on Thursday. So he seems to recognise that that's a risk too. Absolutely. And, and I mean, to the complexity point, we would certainly recognise that over the past while, the, the rules and the, the, the guidance around all of this uh, did get very complex and was difficult for, for, for people to follow. But uh, so a core part of what we're trying to do here is to simplify it down. So if I might, basically, there's a simple message for anyone who's identified as a case. It's that they isolate for seven days. Uh, from, from the time that they first develop symptoms or their first positive test if, they, if they're asymptomatic, that they wear a well-fitted FFP2 or medical grade face mask for 10 days uh, and that they only finish their period of isolation if their symptoms have largely resolved for the last two days, so for days six and seven. Okay. And then for cases, adult cases, uh, if you're identified as, a, sorry, for adults who are identified as a close contact, there's, there's, a, there's one question they have to ask themselves, which is, are they boosted or not? If they're boosted, they don't need to restrict their movements, but they still need to wear a high-grade face mask for 10 days and they'll need to do a series of regular antigen tests, uh, which the HC will supply to them. But then if they're not boosted, they'll still wear, need to wear the mask. They still need to do the regular tests, but on top of that, they need to restrict their movements for seven days. What exactly do you mean when you say higher-grade masks? So an FFP2 or a medical-grade uh, face mask. What's a medical-grade face mask? So these are typically the blue or white uh, uh, face masks that people will have seen. They're, they're, they've got three layers in them. They should be CE marked and they should be marked as medical. Okay, They're quite different though, aren't they, in terms of what we know about their efficacy to the FFP2 masks? So what, 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 so Neff had considered this, this in detail last week and, and what, what Neffet have, have, have recommended basically and recognises that there's a significant difference between cloth masks and medical grade and FFP2 masks. Um, but ultimately the key message, regardless of what mask someone chooses to wear, is that it's well fitted and that they're wearing it appropriately and covering their nose uh, and their mouth. Uh, there's no point wearing an FFP2 mask if it's not worn properly and well fitted. Similarly, there's no point wearing a cloth mask or a medical grade mask. So ultimately, whatever mask a person chooses to wear, 
the key thing is that it's worn properly and well fitted. Mm -hmm. Would you say across Um, the board now that we should all not be wearing cloth masks, but we should be wearing either the blue medical grade masks or the white ones or the FFP2 ones, which people will know are like a duck bill? So so we we haven't said that. So we've said obviously anyone who chooses. So it's it's clear that uh, if worn properly, a medical grade or FFP2 mask will provide a higher level of protection than a cloth mask. That said, for the general population who aren't in cases, who aren't in close contacts or who don't have underlying conditions, uh, it's reasonable for them to continue to wear cloth masks in, in their general activities so long as they're wearing them properly and, and uh, u- using them properly, making sure they're clean, disposing them properly, etc., etc. All of the advice that we've been giving around mm. cloth masks uh, through the pandemic. Dr. Roland Glynn. Deputy Chief Medical Officer, talking about the changes to restrictions that came into effect this morning on Today with Claire Byrne. Everyone's favourite foul-mouthed dairy girl, Jamie Lee O'Donnell, will be seen in the third season of that fantastic sitcom later this year. But in the meantime, she's starring in a prison drama called Screw on Channel 4. Jamie Lee spoke to Ray Darcy this afternoon. I watched it. I really enjoyed it. Uh, screw. So describe it to people because, you know, a, a sort of a, a prison drama is probably a turn off for some people. Well, it's there are some light moments in it, there are some comedy. It's it's a bit like it's a realistic look at the, a prison life for prison officers and the prisoners and the relationships between them all. Yeah. Um, and it's, it's really it's really exciting, sort of. It's exciting, it's drama, it's a bit of comedy. Right, good crack. Yeah, uh, and it, it's it's you're uh, obviously a female prison officer in in a, in a male prison. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and everything that goes with that. And you're you're a new recruit. You're sort of wet behind the ears. Um, well, whenever whenever I come in, it's sort of the audience comes in through my eyes at the beginning. So it's roses. They start with roses. That's my character. Roses first day, and it's sort of all the madness sort of starts the minute she comes on the door. So yeah. it kicks off from there. And you've a, I noticed you've a Northern English accent, which isn't yes. your your normal accent, as we can hear. Yes, <laughs> you're pure dairy, pure dairy. Um, is 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 it difficult? Because dairy, the dairy accent is quite strong, isn't it? Let's be honest. It is a bit. Yes. So is is it um, more is it more difficult when you have a strong accent to do accents or does it matter? Do you know what? I'm not I'm not sure to be honest. I know my accent is pretty strong. But I do enjoy doing accents and I've always done it even since I was wee. Like you yeah. know when you're making stuff up we plays in the house and, and sort of do me bits and pieces yourself. I always enjoy doing different accents and I enjoy the challenge. So it was really nice to get to do it. In a in a professional setting, as yeah. opposed to just me in the house. <laughs> I, I, I suppose it's it's great to be doing something on your own without the rest of them. <laughs> when I say yeah. the rest of them, I mean Derry girls, the Derry girls, yeah, the DD crew. Yes. Um, do you know what? Everybody's sort of getting on and doing their own thing, and it's really brilliant to see. And I think we just I'm just really appreciative of the platform that Derry girls has given us because we are able to all go and be so busy, but. Um, it was great to film the the show there before Christmas. Yeah, and everyone, I've, everyone's off to another own thing now again. And we'll talk about wrapping up in a moment. But but I, I remember talking to you. I think it was a, a day after the Iftis when yeah. um, when Derry Girls swept the boards, and and you, you were high on life and Derry Girls and Come winning over. all the <laughs> <laughs> yes. And but you did say to me. I remember you say to me that that Derry Girls had changed your life, and it, ha- it really has changed your life, hasn't it? It really has. It really has. I said this to Lisa. Um, 
it has changed my life and it's one of those things I'll never be able to be repaired for but it's 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 given me the level of career I've got now and it's allowed me to sort of to grow in my career and as a person and sort of really yeah. just enjoy my career It's it's been brilliant it has been life changing and it's it's so, I'm so proud to be to have been part of it. And, and of course, it has changed your life when you're anywhere in in this, you know, in Northern Ireland, because uh, it broke all sorts of records, wasn't it? It, mm. it was the most watched program ever up up, up in Northern Ireland. Uh, so you are immediately recognisable anywhere you go. Yep. Um, do you know what? It's it's, it's and further afield. It's random. Like cause I was in LA a few years ago, and people were stopping me there to ask about Derry Girls. It was it was crazy. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's crazy how far the reaches yeah. globally. Of course, because it's on Netflix, yeah. Mm. Uh, so, so we spoke to Siobhan uh, before Christmas and she was telling us about the the, the final uh, scenes and it must have been very emotional to rap on that, on Dairy Girls. It was. It was a real bittersweet sort of ending because I think we all are really proud of what we've done um, for the show so far and we're really, really, I mean, I'm really proud of the ending. I think, I think Lisa's done a really brilliant job to wrap it up for everybody and for the audience. But obviously it's sad because... You just you sort of want to play these crazy characters forever because yeah. it's just it's great fun. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah, and I I think people will have experienced that. You know, when you're going through something in your life, you know it's very special. You know it won't last forever, mm. but but you appreciate that it, that it is that. It's exactly that's the thing, and it's very bittersweet. I'm so proud yes. to have been part of it, but at some point it has to come to an end. You know, everybody has to grow up. So yeah. unfortunately, <laughs> yeah. How was lockdown for you? It was it was grand. It was really uneventful. I think just yes, yeah. um, about my main main goal was what takeaway I was having that night. So I just just <laughs> just just eat and watch TV and do a wee bit of writing. Really, really uninteresting. I think I didn't buy an air fryer, so oh. pretty pretty unique that way. What was your go to takeaway? Just anything anything digestible. To be honest, right. it was just <laughs> right, food. You weren't enjoying. Yeah. <laughs> Dairy Girl Jamie Lee O'Donnell talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about her new Channel 4 prison drama, Screw. How hard, or how easy, is it to buy antigen test kits and medical grade face masks in Ireland? Today with Claire Burns reporter Barry Lenehan ventured into Dublin city centre this morning to find out and, as live radio luck would have it, a truck decided to reverse in his vicinity. Good morning, Claire, from O'Connell Street here, right in the heart of the city, the old Cleary store away to my left. And I'm here, I'll tell you why I'm here, because I have a box of antigen tests in my bag here at my foot, which I paid €30 Euro for five all the way out in Shankill on the south side of Dublin. But the pharmacy away here to my right, the very same box of the very same manufacturer available just for €16, Euro, almost half the price. <laughs> now, you spoke to the manager yesterday of the beer garden, a pub in Turner's Cross uh, in County Cork uh, uh, defending selling an uh, antigen test a kit of five uh, using Deliveroo for 50 euro and he, that person that manager not the only one selling on, uh, on the Deliveroo delivery site is wait for this the, the very same box uh, uh, in my bag here I paid 30 euro 16 euro away to my right and it's been available for the last two nights at 40 euro for five uh, on Deliveroo from an Asian grocery store uh, and 
convenience stores in Cork and Dublin, they're in on the Deliveroo Act as well. They can charge up to eight euro for a single test on the delivery site. Maxall, the garage, charging 10 euro. Uh, and ultimately, uh, uh, between five, seven, down to two euro 95 for a, an antigen test delivered to your door. And if you're a bit peckish when you get back from the pub tonight, Claire, and you want to order a, a battered cod, uh, you can bring an antigen test with that as well because the famous chip shop, Leo Burdock's among those to deliver a COVID detector or COVID <laughs> test uh, to your door. Now, these sites, they're de- the, the, these uh, businesses, they're defending the cost of the antigen tests online, arguing that Deliveroo charges a 35% uh, delivery charge in anything they sell. But uh, the fluctuations in prices and tests, which we've uh, just outlined here, they're uh, evident all around the country. Reports, too, as we've hearing about these FFP2 masks being hard to get. And, of course, this all against the backdrop, as you were talking to an hour ago or so with Dr. Ronan Glynn, with those greater emphasis, this greater use on those masks and greater places for those antigen tests as well. Yeah, the masks, I know, it's harder, rarer than hen's teeth they are uh, at the moment. Now, you're talking about the differences in the price of the box of tests, the antigen tests that you're holding there. And indeed, the disparity when you look at what's being offered on Deliveroo, although people can, in most cases, just go to the shop to get them themselves. But you've been looking at the picture nationwide. You've been talking to people there in Dublin. What are they telling you? Well, they've been telling me of the prices they've been paying for their tests and whether they're getting their hands on those masks. Actually, I haven't done an antigen test since Christmas. I, I think I paid 3 50 at them over the Christmas and then after that it was like 11 euro just after Christmas open our local shop and if they were free of charge would that make you do them? <coughs> if they were free yeah absolutely I'd probably do one every second day and the high grade masks have you looked at them? I order at masks uh, those disposable masks on Amazon you get 100 or 10 euro I think it is black ones so I'll just get dozens I don't go into because it's too hard to get them in the shop you know? everybody's buying them like, you know. just a fiver think that's too much yeah should be free <laughs> would it encourage you to do it more or do you have to take them quite a bit as it is um take them quite a bit anyway for work and stuff well, i mean if it's mandatory for places it should be free and these higher grade masks have you looked at getting those they're saying we should be using them more but some people say they can't get them i have no i haven't looked into it at all now for the higher ones now a lot of money yeah yeah I'm not vaccinated, so I have to use it every two couple of days. I have to repeat uh, the antigen test. A lot of money. How, how much ago are you finding them difficult to get? I come from Italy. Spend uh, 15 euro each test for the antigen test. So it's quite expensive, yeah. I paid 25 euro in the camps. Steep? Very steep, yeah. They're only 12.99 in dollars. Yeah, I have to take one every day because of school. And I'm paying around 2 euro. One. I definitely think that if they were free of charge, more people would take them, especially with the schools now. And uh, the masks as well, they're talking of, of uh, better masks, higher grade masks. Can you get your hands on one? Um, no, no. You've tried? Uh, I have, yeah, but I still use these ones. I haven't really bought any antigen tests, to tell you the truth. Why so? Uh, well, I got, I got the booster there a couple, of day, a couple of days ago and I haven't really been, I haven't really been sick, so I got COVID last uh, February. There's calls for them to be free of charge. PCR tests are free of charge. We have to pay for something at some stage, you know, otherwise we're going to be paying for it in taxes in the years to come, I think. And the, the masks, the FFP2 masks? Yeah, I haven't tried. I haven't yeah. tried, I'll be honest with you. I have my, my standard mask and I put it in the wash every week, so that's what I do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a bit of a cheapskate, really, like.
Uh, people in uh, Dublin city centre talking to you earlier, Barry, and you've been visiting different shops and checking in on different parts of the country. So when it comes to antigen tests, how does the price of those uh, tests vary? Well, at the bigger supermarkets, the price point uh, usually comes in under uh, 15 euro for five. When it comes to chemists, pharmacies, other shops, uh, the prices can vary dramatically uh, across counties and within counties as well. Let's take a pack of five antigen tests, a whistle-stop tour of the country uh, from, from uh, information supplied by various sources and so on. 12 euro for a pack of five in Dungarvan County, Waterford. Five for 15 in Letterkenny County, Donegal. And that particularly galling perhaps for those up there because remember, their neighbours in Derry get the same tests for free through the NHS as might be the case in Great Britain as well. €19.95 for the same pack in Gort County Galway, €20 in Kilmihill County Clare, the same around Killarney and Clonakilty County Cork where a single test is €4.22.50 in Ennis, the single test there of fiver, €30 in Anschmidale, Cuntinagoliva and €30 as well for five in Dundrum in South Dublin. The very same pack I'm told by the very same manufacturer available for 17.95 in Knock Line in the same county. At one stage the price of one test in parts of South Dublin was 15 euro before Christmas or two for 16 euro around Cabin Teeley. In Roscommon Town Main Street last night a contact of mine surveyed three chemists and two supermarkets where the cost of five tests fluctuated between 11.99 and 19.99. Uh, Carlos supply problems there yesterday I'm told while the Apple Green in Enfield, they're selling three tests for €10, Euro, but they say that once the tests come in, they're as gone as quick as a flash due to demand. And what about the big retailers and the supermarkets? What are they telling you? Well, Dunn's, of course, selling five for around 13 99 while Supervalue tells me uh, they're selling a single test for 2 99 but they are uh, experiencing significant demand from customers, but stock is regularly replenished. Lidl, meanwhile, uh, in a statement saying uh, they too uh, have had hundreds of thousands of tests sold uh, over the, since the Christmas period, and they're expecting an additional delivery of tests uh, in all stores in the coming days, and they say their five-pack is around a 11.99. Uh, Boots as well, the pharmacy chain, it's saying it has seen a sharp uplift in demand. 19.95 for five there, they say. And also if you open up your morning papers, you will see uh, one of the pharmacies, uh, Macaulay's, uh, advertising how they're selling five tests for 15 euros. So different prices, no matter where you go. And uh, this, of course, against the backdrop with the opposition saying that all these tests should be free, supplied by the state, and also against a backdrop with the HSE, according to figures obtained by the Irish Examiner, uh, the executive, it's paying between 53 and 70 cent per antigen test. Okay. Barry Lenahan talking to Claire Byrne this morning from a pretty noisy O'Connell Street in Dublin. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme was compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Sheridan. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another Playback Daily at the same time on Monday. But for me, until the next time, thank you for listening and good luck.